We're in the middle of Lent, preparing our hearts and our lives to appreciate and receive what our Lord Jesus did for us, gave for the whole world on the cross of Good Friday and the resurrection of Easter. And a key factor in this preparation has always been, since the beginning of the celebration of Lent in the history of the church, the practice of fasting. In fact, prayer and fasting has always been a central part of the Judeo-Christian religion. But today, many, if not most Christians, do not practice any form of fasting, partly because their particular tradition does not encourage it, but also because many of us have forgotten why we should fast. Well, this is what we'll discuss today on Deep in Scripture. Well, welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined, as usual, by Dr. Kenneth Howell. Hello, Ken. Good. Good morning. Good to see you. It's good to, to connect with you over the airways, Ken. Uh, and those of you that are listening, you can also go to the deepinscripture.com website and you can watch us talking. You can listen to the program. You can submit your questions and maybe some scriptures that you'd like us to uh, uh, discuss on a future program. You can also uh, download all the other programs. And, and the purpose of this program, and, and I'm quite sure Ken will agree, it's not about Ken and it's not about me. It's about our love for our Lord Jesus Christ and about Scripture. And our, our hope is that if you enjoy this program, that you'll be involved with your own personal study of Scripture. But we'd love to hear from you and whether this encourages you in your study of Scripture. Ken and I have chosen today a passage from Matthew chapter 6 about fasting. We're right in the middle of Lent. And as I mentioned in the opening, a a large percentage of Christians today do not practice fasting, either because the idea of fasting isn't encouraged in their particular tradition. It wasn't in mine when I grew up. And Or they may be in traditions that have fasting, like the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church, but they themselves don't practice it very well, partially because we, we may not appreciate why. What, what's the point of fasting? Is it just one more thing that God doesn't want me to do or that his, the leaders in the church don't want me to do? Uh, so what is fasting? And what is the history, the tradition, the purpose and the power of fasting. And so Ken and I decided we'd look at this passage. And Ken, what I'm going to do is I'd like to read this passage for the audience. They may not have a Bible sitting in front of them if they're driving a truck somewhere on a highway. And But what I'd like you to do after I read it, Ken, is uh, what you do with this passage back when you were a Presbyterian pastor or growing up in the Presbyterian Church, or later when you and your wife were active in the Lutheran Church. What would you do with this passage? Was it a part of your tradition? So let me read. This is Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18. This is our Lord speaking. And when you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast... Anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
So, Ken, back when you were a Presbyterian pastor, what did you do with this passage? How many months out of the year did you preach on it? <laughs> how about how many uh, years out of the whole time? Uh, <laughs> probably once or twice. I did. I do remember preaching through the uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And, um, in fact, I remember two particular points. The verse 16 where it says, Do not be like the hypocrites. Um, one of the things that were Presbyterians were very strong on was uh, not having a lot of encumbrances and a lot of uh, growth in your, that is, a lot of the things that would distract you from serving God. And so, for example, uh, one of the things that we thought about Catholics was that they had all these statues and all these, uh, you know, set prayers like the Hail Mary and so forth and, and all these litanies and novenas. And that was just a that was just kind of a hypocritical um, way of praying. In fact, you know, the Lord says later on, or rather earlier in the chapter, don't don't babble on like the pagans. But He gave us a prayer to pray. So I saw the modern application of Jesus' warning here about not being like the hypocrites as applying to the Catholic Church. <laughs> well, I was going to say because they seem to me to be. I was going to say we you know one, one of the slangs that we would use against Catholics was fish eaters. Because we were being sarcastically ridiculing of their fasting practice on Fridays. One of the things that we misunderstood at that time was their their understanding of of the role of uh, self-discipline in salvation, that is, of, of growing in grace and of eventually being with God, because we thought, well, you didn't need all that because you're simply saved by faith in Jesus Christ and you don't need any... You don't need all these extra works to save you because only Christ can save you anyway. Of course, that was a misunderstanding of the Catholic teaching. But nevertheless, given that we thought that at the time, it seemed like these verses applied. Um, what was a little bit more difficult to, um, for me to preach was verse 17 when it says, But when you fast, anoint your head and, and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but only to your Father who is in secret. Um, that seems to imply that you should fast. Um, and so the question was, well, how much did that apply to us today? And what I saw it as, as was being sort of a, an optional thing. Well, yeah, you can fast if you want to. That That's fine. But Jesus isn't here giving us a, a command like do not kill or do not steal or something of that nature. And I'm so sure you that you... if you want, but... Uh, and I'm sure that you, like me, we washed our face and... And put uh, wild oh, sure, hair tonic yeah. <laughs> on our head, you know. To, so we we did these things, you know. How do you imply them? How do you yeah. interpret them? And and that was the, the part of the danger that I began to see as a as a pastor uh, uh, committed to sola scriptura in private interpretation and my responsibility as a leader of my congregation to help them understand that. And so I might put a spin on it because there were, to me, there were. The context of this passage, Ken, you mentioned before the program the importance of making sure we put this in the context. The context of Matthew 6, 16 through 18, has to be recognized in the wider context, first of all, of the Sermon on the Mount, which we won't get into completely today, but in the little bit smaller context of chapter 6, beginning with verse 1 through verse 21. There's, it's like a sandwich, and it's an important theological sandwich to see as the context for us understanding at, at the core of the meat of the sandwich, 
of prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. And the bread of the sandwich begins in Psalm in verse 1, where our Lord says, Beware of practicing your piety before men in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So there's the, the overall context, is this danger of what is at the core of your heart and mind when you pray, when you give a donation, and when you self-sacrifice through fasting. Who are you trying, who are you talking to when you pray? Why are you giving? Why are you sacrificing? That's what Jesus is getting. That's the context. Because in this context is this idea of a reward. And so he begins the sandwich with the bread of what is the sincerity? Who are you trying to impress with your prayers, hmm. your giving, your fasting, and, and this reward idea? And then the bread at the other side of the sandwich is verses 19 through 21 when he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes, nor thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So this idea of the rewards, the treasures, in the context. Yeah. Now, Ken, that really is kind of the, the, the neat context, the important context that we need to begin with as we approach this passage. Well, that that's a a great uh, point because especially when it the, the latter part of the sandwich when it, the bread when it says where your where your treasure is there will your heart be also, you know that was emphasized in the Old Testament as well. But what had happened was that in the history of God's holy people, the Jews, um, is that they had externalized the faith and made that more important than the internal change. And if you look in the prophets, you'll see that they they uh, they criticized or railed against the the Jews of their day. Jeremiah talks about circumcising your hearts because it's not good enough just to be circumcised. The circumcision of the skin or the body was to be a sign of the inner circumcision of the heart, of, of, of an openness of heart to God. And that's what Jesus is calling the Jews back to, is away from just conceiving of their faith and their relationship with God by external law, uh, but that external law points to an inner reality of relationship with God, and that's that's what he's really wanting to get at. Uh, you're listening to Deep in Scripture. I'm your host, Marcus Grodi, and, and of course, our, our co-host is Dr. Kenneth Hall. Can I remember, as a Presbyterian pastor, standing in my pulpit after I had prepared and I not only prepared, I'm wondering if you did this too, I not only prepared a sermon, which would take many hours each week uh, to, to study and prepare, but I also prepared a prayer. I wrote a prayer mm. that I would pray as a part of liturgy, because we didn't have a liturgical book, it was up to me, and so I would write a prayer that I would mm -hmm. pray with the congregation. The, you know, flowery words. Um, mm -hmm. But I remember looking back, you know, 30 years ago, thinking, uh, who am I talking to in this prayer? 
am I talking to Jesus? <laughs> or am I, yeah. am I being political here? Am I trying to influence? Am I, how much of this is vertical and how much of this is horizontal? And that's kind of what Jesus is getting at in here, in our prayers, in our almsgiving, yeah. in our, and we fasted. There's a sense in which we fasted as a Presbyterian. We never used the word fasting. We didn't give up meat on Fridays, but we gave up our casual clothes on Sunday morning. We would show up on Sundays <laughs> fasting from yeah. our casuals, and everyone put on their goods. That's a form of <laughs> fasting from other things, you know. Some yeah. men would fast from yeah. golf one hour a week on Sunday Whoa. to come to worship. <laughs> Quite a sacrifice. It was. It was a sacrifice, yeah. and they made sure everybody knew it. So, I mean, again, is it vertical or horizontal? I'm sure you yeah, never had yeah. those problems, Ken. <laughs> well, I actually, I never, I never did, um, I did, I never wrote out my prayers, but I got pretty adept at uh, at doing it spontaneously, and 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 as you were implying there, not for the benefit of God's ears, but for the benefit of my congregation's ears, um, and that, in every, I think every sensitive and reflective Christian realizes that you can come to the point where you, you your religion does become something lived just before men uh, rather than as an old phrase says in Latin coram deo before God in the presence of God um, and that's what our Lord is reminding the people of that in this new covenant he as the new Moses giving the new law this is going to be a law from the inside out it's going to be a law that is, this new law is going to be a law that's truly focused upon the heart. So he brings them back to that key, that key statement, where your treasure is, uh, there will your heart be also. So let's talk a bit about, in the bread of this theological sandwich, we have reward from your Father who is in heaven, and we have treasure. Mm-hmm. What what does our Lord mean by the rewards? What are we talking about here? Rewards. What do you mean rewards? He, Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, is talking about something that he's not cre- inventing. He's, not this, he's talking with it right. in a sense that his audience knows what he's talking about. Uh, is, is this reward merely salvation, or is it more? Well, I, I think that he's he's building upon the Old Testament teaching that God will judge every man according to his works. Now, that's very clear in the Old Testament. I mean, there's no, numerous verses that could be pointed to. But it's also something that Paul points to, for example, in Romans chapter 2, where he says that God will judge every man according to his works. So the reward that Jesus is speaking of here is a reward that is um, according to the principle of correspondence. Um, We believe as Christians that God is just. Now, what is justice? Justice is built upon a principle of correspondence, that there's a correspondence between the effect and the cause. We see that in the natural world. We also see that in the moral world. So that... God's reward to people is his um, giving them what they deserve. Now, 
what they deserve is in a connection with what's in their heart. And that's what Jesus, I think, is really getting at, is that God is going to judge according to the heart. Remember that in the story of David, uh, when when um, Samuel was going to anoint David, uh, the Lord said to, to him, God does not judge according to the man's outward appearance, but according to the heart. And so uh, that's what our Lord is saying here, that you're going to have a reward in heaven if you do these good acts based upon the your relationship to God, not looking for the reward of of uh, of men. Uh, so when he goes on to talk about giving alms, you give them without you give them anonymously, you give them privately, because your reward will be with God in heaven. In Revelation. So yeah, I think I think that the reward here. Hmm, I was going to say right? in in. Uh... And I'm sorry for I feel like I've interrupted you. I think it's our voice, the delay in, in our connection. But uh, no. in Revelation, so we go all the way to the, the oh, end no. of the of the New Testament, and we see it's not like I remember as a as a Calvinist, my understanding was that um, the idea of works and and what I do in this life, uh, since I'm totally depraved, given Luther's and Calvin's understanding of the human person as a result of the fall, therefore there's nothing I can do that would contribute whatsoever to my salvation. And so, uh, you know, I looked at Jesus Christ as he's covered me with his righteousness. So I really had a struggle with all the passages in the New Testament that, as you just said, point out that what we do affects this reward in in heaven. And uh, what one verse that's interestingly at the end of Revelation that says, you know, hey, you can't mess up with any of these books, right? can't take away from or add to the books. Well, that's what it says yeah. in Revelation 22. Well, in Revelation 20, verse um, 12, uh, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, by what they had done. And so, again, that just confirms yeah, that, that there's a connection between how we live in this world and the rewards. Mm-hmm. And uh, can, uh, you know, correct me on this if you will, but way back, uh, about halfway through the history of the church, there was a gathering at a consul, I think it was at Florence, that dealt with this part of this issue in a theological way that talked about See, we, we often think about we're either going to be saved or not saved, and that's it. And we don't know what's on the other side of the great divide. We're either in hell or heaven. And um, if we're if by right. the forgiveness of God we're going to enter into heaven, we've got to get cleaned up a little bit through the purging time, but we'll be with God. Okay, that's. But what the church recognized in this idea of rewards, why it's so important, that the it talked about the amount of, of the beatific vision that we experience. And that is connected exactly. to the grace yes, that's right. in this life. So there isn't merely a, 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 an on-off right. switch, yeah. that it's the, the quality, the holiness, <laughs> no. the level of grace, the way we have purged ourselves in this life that connects with the amount of the beatific vision that we experience eventually when we by grace, enter into the presence of God. 
Well, you, you've just beautifully uh, stated there what, what the church has taught us about the three stages of the interior life, right? That, that the purgation, and these are not three stages just sequential in the sense that one's gone and that one's done and the other starts, but they're kind of mixed together because you have the purgation, and that's what the fasting and is to, to be done. That's what the almsgiving is about. That's what prayer is about, is about disposing ourselves more and more to the grace of God. And as that takes place, there's also then illumination that takes place. And we see a little bit more clearly what the world is like, what God is like. And we begin to understand how desirable God is. And then we get little bits of union with God. And that is so satisfying that we practically want nothing else in life. But then we move more toward that, and that ultimately is is uh, climaxed in heaven. Um, so yeah, this is what the reward means. It means more of God, as Tom, as Thomas, you know, Saint Thomas Aquinas said when he had that ex- mystical experience, when God said, "Well, what do you want me to do for you?" and he said, "Well, just have give me more of you, because there's nothing better than that." In that uh, first yeah, Corinthians, this is, a, this is a beautiful point. Well, the first Corinthians three passage that talks about this purgation, it it. It examines the quality of what we have done in this world. If it's if the quality is of is of high value, and he uses the imagery of of uh, gold and pearls and diamonds or whatever. Uh, I don't have that open before me. Then you know the per, that is the quality of the beatific vision that we experience. But if what we've done in this life is nothing more than wood, hay, and stubble. Well, I'm a farmer, you know, and that stuff burns right away, and there's nothing left. Right. But the, but he says, but you'll survive, you'll pass. So this is talking about someone who's gained entrance into heaven as a result of living in grace. But in this life, the quality of that grace, the quality of our living is minimal. And so we squeak mm-hmm. through. But the level of the reward, the experience of God for eternity is minimal. And I think I wasn't yeah. didn't wasn't yeah. brought up Catholic, but I've heard some say that the the nuns say some of us will get a thimble full and some of us will be a, get a a bucket full and we'll both be happy. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's going to be happiness. But yeah, the um, you know that that verse that you pointed us to, where uh, Saint Augustine comments on this verse too, and and Paul Paul in his in his First Corinthians three fifteen says that. Uh, the work of each one will be burned up, but he himself will be spared and be saved, though as through fire. So that purgatory is the fire that burns away the dross, that uh, burns away the hay and the stubble, so that what is enduring, the gold and the silver and the and the precious stones, those are the things that will endure. Um, what I think Paul is saying, St. Augustine says this is, this is the purgation that takes place in the future life and in the present life. And that's really what fasting and almsgiving and prayer are about. It's about going through this purgation process so that we can receive more of God. You know, a friend of mine recently told me about a book that I just got to get my hands on. It's called The Spiritual Legacy of Newman, of, of Cardinal John Henry Newman. It was a book done way back in the 30s, but she was reading parts of it to me. It was just marvelous. But 
she, it could be a little discouraging in the sense that um, most of us don't realize how much purgation we need. Uh, and that's why fasting is so important. We need, we need to be purged more and more. And sometimes the more that we are purged, the more we realize we need to be purged. Uh, that is why the church says during Lent, we want to give you this special opportunity together as the people of God to engage in these quiet acts of fasting and, and mercy and prayer so that you can be more ready to receive the enlightenment of God. And the importance of fasting is the way of affirming that God in, in the mystery of his will still gives us freedom of choice as opposed to the Calvinist yeah. Lutheran perspective which says because our will is so depraved there's nothing we can do we really can't even choose the ultimate Calvinist perspective we really don't have the freedom to choose so the idea of fasting doesn't make sense but in the Catholic perspective Orthodox perspective yeah. when we recognize that there will be a time when we'll be purged and it won't be our choice but this is a choice of yeah. the will that we choose to yeah. set aside good things to strengthen our will yeah. so that in the difficult times, it's like, it's like exercising. We strengthen our will through fasting so that when we face the difficult times, we can stand before God without embarrassment. Well, I, you know, I think when you think about commentaries on Scripture, you know, most of us, both Catholic and Protestant, we go to these official things called commentaries. But maybe the greatest commentary on this scriptural practice of fasting that you just commented on is in the lives of the saints who've, who've regularly gone to confession because their diaries and their jour personal journals give a very strong testimony to the reality of the purgation that takes place in our daily lives and in such a way that we, we grow closer to God. We desire God more and more, who is the ultimate reality that we are going to, to face in the end and the ultimate joy of our life. All right, Ken, thank you. We're, let's take a break here. We'll come back in a little bit. And what I'd like to do, Ken, is to talk about this a little bit more about this particular verse how it moved into the book of Acts and then into the early church fathers, and then to talk about how today, the importance of how it needs to be a part of our life. Today, you're listening to Deep in Scripture. I'm Marcus Grody with Kenneth Howell. See you in a bit. Hello, I'm Marcus Grody, the host of this program, and I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. 
Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grody and, and Dr. Kenneth Howell. And uh, once again, remind you of the website, www.deepinscripture.com, where you'll find out more about this program, uh, previous programs, how you can give us some ideas, some comments about the program. And you can link to the Coming Home Network to find out about our work there. Ken, this uh, program on fasting is going very fast. <laughs> that's good. I guess that's because we're denying ourselves something. We've got we've got a lot of a lot of stuff. What you know, the reason I want to talk about what we did in the first half is because to understand this background that fasting is a very important part of our present understanding of our walk with Jesus Christ and why it is, and it it isn't merely a uh, one more burden for us to to bear during this time, but that has direct effect on how we are uh, training our souls to face the struggles of the, of the spiritual life. Uh, and as a result of that, it has an eternal effect on the experience we will have with God if by grace we end up uh, in his presence for eternity. And Kim, what I'd like to do now, if I could with you, is to throw it back into, into your podium for a little bit and talk about, here we have these words of our Lord in which he is, in the midst of his wonderful Sermon on the Mount, he is talking to the people not about something new that he wants to get them to start doing, but presuming they're doing this practice of fasting. Why? But also draw us, Ken, to show the tradition of this as it goes from our Lord into the early church. Well, yeah, I think um, you're absolutely right. We have to see the, both the continuity and the discontinuity between the Old Testament and our Lord's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, in the continuity is that there were days of fasting and days of prayer. Uh, there was the, you know, the sackcloth and the ashes of the Old Testament and this was something familiar to the old to the Old Testament saints. It's clear from the very way that Jesus speaks about it that the Jews were still practicing that. But what's the newness of the new covenant? The newness of the new covenant is that he is warning against the pure externalization of faith and of religion, of just doing, as you said, as an extra add-on, another responsibility or burden. Um Rather, it's, it is a responsibility, but it's a responsibility that brings joy into our lives because 
We are ever drawing ever closer to God when we uh, live this way. And that's what the early church uh, certainly seemed to understand. Um, for example, we see that in when Luke gets around to writing the, the history of the early church in the book of Acts, in chapter 13, he speaks about the, the, the church at Antioch. And there Paul and uh, Barnabas had gone, and they were serving in the church of Antioch. But then it says, while they were worshiping the Lord, or maybe we could translate that, while they were involved in the liturgy of the church and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So that what this, this is the beginning of Paul's missionary journeys. And his home base is the church in Antioch, which we know from ancient history was one of the major metropolitan centers of, of the ancient world. Really, and it still was way up until probably the 6th or 7th century A.D. But what we see here is that that the worship of God and the fasting is put together. There's three things, really. There's the worship, the liturgy, fasting, and mission. The, the sending out of all of the, the missionaries, uh, the missionary apostles. So that still characterizes the church today. In order to, In order to be in touch with God, to know what God wants us to do, we must be in a position of worship before him. But then we have to add to that our own sacrifices, or rather sacrifice in order to listen to the Lord, to hear him when he says, I want you to do X, Y, and Z. He can. And then I'm, I'm, afterwards we worship. I'm, I'm sorry, Ken. Uh, I was just want to interrupt there. Do you see this there, that this unique juxtaposition, juxtaposition of worship, liturgy, prayer and fasting as really the expression of the incarnational whole person of our faith? It isn't merely what we do in our mind, prayer. I mean, some can see prayer as a totally silent thing we do in our mind between us and God. But by always seeing this juxtaposition of prayer and fasting, those are together all the times, that what we're seeing expressing is mm-hmm. that even prayer itself involves the whole person. That's the fasting part of it, is that the way we pray to God is by disciplining our body. We aren't merely souls trapped in a body. Yeah. Right, exactly. In fact, the way St. Thomas Aquinas puts it is that we are we are kind of a soul-body unit. We're not a soul in the body. We're, he uses that language, of course, but he means by that we're a soul-body. Uh, you know, when you said that, it reminded me of a verse in James chapter 1 uh, when he says, If any man seems to be religious, uh, seems to be devout, uh, and doesn't bridle his tongue, uh, he deceives himself. And his worship or his piety is is worthless. It's futile. And then he goes on to say, so what is pure worship or what is pure piety? It is to be blameless in the presence of God, our God and Father. It is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. In other words, it's charity and it's purity. And so the way that we do that if if it were just purity, that would be individualistic. But it's going out and doing something for mm-hmm. someone else. It's the point you're making here. It's to use our physical being uh, 
to uh, be um, to be available to others. That's what Paul and Barnabas were doing by their by their mission, so that the incarnational nature of our faith, our Catholic faith, is such that we must both do things inwardly and we must do things outwardly. We must do things with our body. So we pray, but we also fast. And that's a carrying we out of... fast and pray, but we also give alms. I was going to say, that's exactly, therefore, the, the way the church has taken seriously the words of the Sermon on the Mount from our Lord and said, this is the mandate. This is the... Uh, this is what yeah. we're to do: pray, almsgiving, and fasting. This is how we we live out both our vertical relationship with God, but our horizontal relationship with one another. And and those are inter intertwined because as as Jay, as uh, John says in his little epistle, you know how can a man say he loves God if he doesn't love his brother? It's very clear that that the church did pick up on this because when you look at um, the liturgical section, for example, of the Didache, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, um, we see exactly these emphasis coming coming out. Remember uh, that the Didache uh, is a document that we think was written somewhere between 50 A.D. and maybe 150 A.D., but it is undoubtedly one of the earliest documents that we have outside the New Testament that is a witness to the way the early church lived, what they practiced, and how and how and what they believed. And it's very clear in chapter eight of the Didache that the writer, uh, very much like like Matthew, records Jesus' words: "Don't practice fasting with the hypocrites. They fast on Mondays and Thursdays. You should fast on Wednesdays and Fridays." Now, by the way, a lot of Catholics today don't know this, but there is a long tradition of people practicing Wednesday and Friday as fasting days. You can see it goes yep. right back <laughs> to the late 1st century, early 2nd century at the latest. The writer of the Didache goes on to say, Nor should you pray like the hypocrites. Rather, pray as the Lord commanded in the gospel. And then he quotes the Lord's Prayer, which shows how seriously these earliest Christians were taking the Sermon on the Mount. Yep. They took that prayer exactly as our Lord intended it. And what was that? This is the prayer of Jesus the rabbi, who also is the Son of God. All the rabbis gave their, gave their disciples prayers to pray. And this formulaic prayer summarizes everything that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's quite natural that the writer of the Didache would quote it again as he's talking about fasting. So... Uh, we see then in one of his earliest documents that the present practice that we do in the Catholic Church, in the Orthodox Church, is a long-standing, continuous tradition from the beginning. It also demonstrates that the leadership of the Church had the authority under the Holy Spirit to change practice, not change mm -hmm truth and moral teaching, and we still recognize this, that the church doesn't claim authority to change that which is true or that which is uh, uh, required in our moral practice. However, spiritual practice, devotions, uh, the church has right. that God-given authority. Uh, we see it in the fact that our Jewish heritage 
gathered in the temple on Saturday, the early Christians mm-hmm. yeah. uh, then added the first, the eighth day of the week, you know, the first day, the day of the resurrection right. as the day. So right. now some Christians we know today have a problem with that, you know, and have an entire new Christian tradition to return to. You've got to worship on Saturday for it to be authentic because it, it, at the core, they don't recognize mm-hmm. that the church has been given by Christ the authority to change practice as is necessary for the people of the church. We see that in Didache here. Exactly. And what I think we also see, though, is that this is, uh, as you emphasized, there's this freedom to guide the church in its spiritual, I mean, the members of the church in their spiritual journey by saying you should fast on these days and so forth. But notice what it also does is that it unifies all the people of God. If if all the people of God are fasting on one day throughout the world, um, a week or maybe two days a week, um, it's very clear then that that, um, that brings a kind of spiritual identity to them together. And that's one of the things that perhaps you've noticed as I did, as I moved more and more in my thinking from a Presbyterian or Protestant sort of mentality to a Catholic one, um, it's very much a difference between a very individualistic mentality versus a kind of corporate mentality. One of the things that, you know, we've often heard about uh, Catholic parishes is how unfriendly they are and how nobody says hi and so forth. And that needs to be corrected, to be sure. But one of the reasons for that, I think, is good, is that Catholics don't necessarily thrive upon a um upon a system of of um being friendly so much as they do what draws them together is the identity that is given by the liturgy and it's the litur- it's the identity that's given by the the practices that you do together so that this is why many people call themselves Catholic who haven't gone to church in years because that identity is still deeply embedded within them, even though they're not living a Christian life. Uh, it's these practices that the church has seen fit to continue from the very beginning, as you said, um, that allow that to happen. We had You had uh, mentioned Acts 13 and Acts 14 as references of where prayer and fasting, worship and fasting we're a regular part of the church. Well, in the next chapter, Acts 15, we see the gathering of the church dealing with whether Gentile converts to the faith need to be circumcised. This is a long-standing practice from the Old Testament, and we see that the authority of the gathered church under its leadership, guided by the Holy Spirit, has the authority to change that long-standing practice of circumcision to allow Gentile converts to the faith uh, to, to set other standards of practice. And so, but my point of making this out is this issue of fasting, if you bring it all the way to today, the church you, at one point emphasized that you know, uh, no meat on Fridays. Later in our lifetime, the church relaxed that particular discipline uh, opening the door to say for each individual person to, on the one hand, yes, you must fast on certain days in Lent and on 
on Fridays throughout the year, but that we have the freedom to decide what makes sense for our situation in our life, which is good for fasting. So, Ken, in that sense, we see the authority of the church given by the Holy Spirit to guide her people for the purpose of growing in holiness. Well, yeah, exactly. And this is a, this is another aspect of that uh, point about the authority of the church is that I remember having a conversation some years ago with a woman who had grown up Catholic, and she was um, saying that the church ought to allow women to be ordained into the church or into the priesthood. And uh, I was giving her various reasons why that is not possible. And she said, and I said, you know, the, the church can't change the traditions that came from Christ and the apostles. The church is not given that authority. That neither not even the Pope has had the authority to change what Christ taught. And she said, Well, yeah, but the church changed fast, you know, eating meat on Fridays. <laughs> and I kind of you know, my my jaw dropped because I thought, wait a minute. Do you understand that eating meat on Friday is a spiritual practice? It's not a dogma, it's not a doctrine of the church. The church has the authority to to modify, to change these things while keeping to the core of what was being taught. That's the case with eating meat on Fridays or not eating meat on Fridays. But the question of ordination to a sacrament or a sacrament as ordination as a sacrament, well, that's a dogma. That's that's something that the church doesn't have the authority to change. So this is really important to sort out in people's minds what does the church have authority to change and what does it not have authority to change? And in the case of that we're talking about here today, prayer and fasting and different ways of praying, the church can regulate, but the church basically says, Hey, we're we're gonna we're gonna give you the minimum here. You 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 can decide on your own the way to live this out in particular. But just observe, especially during Lent, that we that you that you abstain from meat on Fridays because that brings unity to the experience of Lent for the whole church. And that you make another good point, Ken, and that is the distinction between what if we're not faithful in our practice of the fasting regulations of the church? Yeah. You know, if and talk about the value of fasting because let's say, okay, if I'm not supposed to uh, do a, a certain sin because that'll separate me from God, and then I do it, all right? Well, that that is one thing, yes. That separates us from God. An abortion or uh, you know, any list of other sins that would come under the category of mortal would separate us from God if we do a certain sin. Mm-hmm. But if we're not mm-hmm. supposed to eat meat on Friday and then we go ahead and eat meat on Friday, we haven't separated ourselves from God we don't bring upon ourselves condemnation. It isn't a mortal sin to break the fasting laws of the church. But there are beneficial reasons to follow those laws, which is the reason that the church has given them to us. So talk about the distinction yeah, there, if you would, Ken. Well, I think the, the distinction has to do is, is two distinctions. One is whether one is... Um, sort of sins or, or does things by accident, you might say. In other words, <clears throat> suppose somebody forgets that, oh, it's Friday and during Lent and I, and I, and I ate something, you know, I ate meat or something like that. 
or uh, suppose they're forced through the circumstances, the social circumstances, to almost have to eat uh, meat on Friday. Well, then, uh, did one intend to be uh, disobedient to the church, to be disobedient to God? Well, in the case of a person that does it by accident, so to speak, they weren't intending to be to be uh, un, unfaithful. They simply, you, know, you might say, fell into it. It was a sin of weakness, or it was a, it was a mistake of weakness, right? Um, that should probably be brought to the confessional, yeah. But, but you know, a good priest is going to say, well, you didn't intend to sin at that point. You didn't intend to do that. Um, but then the other, the, the difference between that and and someone who defies the church absolutely defiant about a particular practice that's that's a, a much more problematic that's what borders on mortal sin because remember a mortal sin is is a mortal sin one if you knew that it was wrong uh two if it was grave matter and then three if it was if you had the the intention or the will of doing wrong well if you have the intention and will the desire the defiant decision to do something wrong then then yeah it could become mortal sin even something more or less trivial could become a mortal sin with that type type of uh, uh, an attitude um what fasting is supposed to help us do is to get us away from that defiant spirit by it's a form of it's a voluntary self-deprivation now the reason that we do that is to achieve a higher goal Think of it as an analogy of something like um, running track. I used to enjoy running track until oh, a certain age, and I gave it up. But uh, <laughs> as you run, as you practice, as you practice day after day, learning how to run fast, you have to deprive yourself of the ease of the couch, of the being a couch potato. You have to get up. You have to work at it hard. You're depriving yourself by because you're forcing yourself. To, to exercise your body in order to achieve the finish line. Well, fasting is like that. You are forcing your body to be more disciplined in order to open your soul. And as you talked about earlier, the, the this intimate relationship between the body and the soul, what we do with our body affects our soul. There's no doubt about it. So if we live uh, indulgent lives, if we leave where we just are completely satisfying our, as the biblical word, flesh, our bodily desires, we're going to end up being very sloppy people and, and, and be deprived of the blessing of God in our souls. But if we live self-disciplined lives, if we voluntarily, voluntarily give our lives over to fasting, we're opening up a, 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 a space of silence where we can be more open to God and we can begin listening to God more and more. So fasting today could take a form that's more than just uh, food. In fact, on, on Fridays that are not in Lent, we should fast every Friday in some way, shape, or form. But it doesn't have to be fasting from food. It might be fasting from a certain practice. Or as one of my friends told me recently, he gave up playing video games during during Lent. And that that's a good thing because he likes to play the video games. So he's saying to himself, no, for this period of time, I'm not going to do it. And that's opening his spirit more and more to God. 
One of the things I think we could definitely profit from in the in the modern world is what I call fasting from noise, news, and commotion, <laughs> because we are we are just inundated with the noise today, white noise, you know, that yep. background noise that's always there around us. Um, and uh, by the way, I, the, the, there's an airport here in the United States that can be voted the most spiritual airport in the United States. You know which one it is? <laughs> it's Pittsburgh. <laughs> I, I've been in Pittsburgh recently about twice, and twice in, in recent months. And you know the kind of music they have in the background? But, this soft classical music that soothes your spirit. <laughs> if you go to a place like Chicago or New York, I mean, it's this blaring yeah. music and news that's <laughs> everywhere, you know. So Pittsburgh is a it's Pittsburgh Airport is a great place to fast from all the noise well, around us. Well, at least one good point for Pittsburgh Airport. You know, that the whole chapter fourteen <laughs> the whole chapter fourteen of Romans deals with this issue of eating or drinking or, you know, being a stumbling block for other people as they watch you eat and drink. And he makes the point in verse seventeen, for the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then at the end of that chapter he says, But he who has doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not act from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And, and the overall point there is that it's not about whether meat is bad or, you know, listening to an iPod is bad. That's not the point. The point is the discipline of the Spirit, the discipline of who we are, a whole person, our body, so that through our will we can be obedient to Christ so that we can have a life of holiness, of joy, and of peace. That's why we fast. Yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. All right, Ken. Well, we, we covered it to some extent today. I hope those listening uh, would love to hear your thoughts on this program. And uh, Ken, until next week, enjoy this next week of Lent. Great. God bless you. Thank you a lot. Okay, all of you listening, you know, this challenge of fasting is something not just for Fridays and Wednesdays, but it's every day. What parts of our lives have become God's? That last verse of 1 John is to avoid idols. What are the idols in our lives that we need to fast from so we can make more space for Jesus in our lives? God bless you. See you next week.